so much. That's beautiful, powerful. Will you pray with me? Oh God, even for those today who have mournful and broken hearts, help us to rejoice. Help us to hear your voice and receive new life from Scripture, from silence, from sermon, from song, wherever you want to do it, God. May your Holy Spirit be ever-present. Amen. So, the next three weeks is like a mini-sermon series. And at the end of this third third week, uh, in three weeks, you will be an official Methodist nerd if you just just pay attention, right? Um, And um, I want to do this because I think this is, to me, is... Really the greatest gift that the, the Methodist Church has for the, for the world. It's, it's one of the things that I think we should be proud of and lean into. And uh, so I want to talk about grace. I want to talk about grace. So uh, the working title of this is Grace Revis- Revisited, Relentless, and Free. The grace, right? And we're in a season where... Uh, the United Methodist Church, you know, and, and other institutions are being questioned. And there's just a lot of, man, you Google that right now, you're liable to get anything uh, on the Internet about what's going on. And, you know, and it's, it's okay. It's, we should be questioning all of the institutions that we're a part of. Because to never question it is to never improve upon ourselves. And if we don't do that and really look inward deeply, then really all we're doing is, is propaganda. And I, I don't want us to be about that for sure. We stand on the shoulders of the saints before us. This Methodist movement started about 250 years ago. It's a little bit older than our country. We need to ask significant questions about what we believe, how we believe, our practice, our doctrine, our theology, it should. If, if we can't do it in the church, where can we do it? If our faith is too fragile for people to ask serious questions, then we're in big trouble. So, because of this very public challenging season, and uh, people being, well, people, right? There's, not, there's no doubt uh, these have been two or three really hard years to be United Methodist. Especially a pastor, but I'm sure for everybody. People have raised serious questions about what it even means to be the United Methodist Church. Now, one of the most frequent questions I've got the last ten years is, why are there even denominations? Have you ever gotten that one? You ever heard of that one? And that's a good one. And so I try to answer that denominations come out of Different countries, in different histories. Sometimes denomination comes out of different languages being spoken, right? Um, But even when I start talking about that and talk about the United Methodist Church as a movement, or the Methodist Church as a movement from the 18th century started by a Church of England priest by the name of John Wesley, his brother Charles, who wrote all these hymns. By the way, the movement wasn't started by either John or Charles. You know who it was started by? Susanna. She started the Methodist movement. And uh, the more I read about her, 
the more I'm excited about this uh, passing on the faith, which is what we'll talk about just a little, a little bit later. I've become a little bit of an institutionalist. I can't believe I'm saying that. My 20-year-old self wouldn't like that um, so much because I questioned everything. And yet I want to tell you, here's what I believe. Our denominational identity, it matters. It really matters. Beyond all the red tape and the polity, being United Methodist is a way of being and a way of seeing the world. And the reason I'm United Methodist is because we center and elevate one thing. Grace. Grace. We take grace seriously. We organize our entire theology around this gift of grace. It is who we are. It is what we do. It's everything. It's why I'm a United Methodist and why I hope you're proud to be a United Methodist if you are as well. I believe when people fall in love with Wesley's understanding of grace, everything else falls in its proper place. It'll make a difference in our lives, in our whole world. Just this one thing about grace. Now, to be a United Methodist, as you probably know, is not to have a monopoly on grace. We're not the only grace show in town, right? But we have a unique notion of God's love. God's grace in our tradition is to be loved, forgiven, and inspired, and to live a life every day that looks a little bit more and a little bit more like the life of Jesus Christ. That's what we're about. That's how we make disciples. Now, when I was a child in my hometown, county seat hometown, I would often attend activities of other churches. How many of you, was that kind of your story, right? Absolutely. There was a big steeple church in Brookhaven. I won't name it because it doesn't matter. Full of wonderful people, by the way. And I loved going there. Um, probably wasn't for the best of reasons. They had a gym, okay? They had a gym. Uh, they had a family life center. They had fountain drink machine. I couldn't believe it. You could go get a Coke, you know, and, and do the thing. That was, they had ping pong tables. And they had pool tables. But when I went there, they talked a little differently about God than the way my home church talked about God. It was a little bit lonely to be there because we were always outnumbered in high school and everything that we did. And I almost felt a little weird and almost had to apologize for being Methodist. I always felt uncomfortable attending high steeple uh, programs. And I can remember some that were about like, man, it was, uh, they called it good news, but you would go there and they would scare you to death. You know, it was like, okay, the world's coming to an end and it might be all over. So come here, talk about it. You can see that. And I was like, I would leave there scared. I was like, what kind of good news would make you scared, right? Would make you nervous about all that. But they had the gym, and they had the soda fountain, and I was going, right? They loved me there, too. So they were great people. I'm not saying anything about them, bad about them. 
But I would listen to them talk about God and I would feel very alone. Why was God so angry at that church all the time? Why was Jesus always in a bad mood during their Bible studies? I could not understand it. I would go home, I would talk to my mom and dad, and they would say, Bruce, we're just a little bit different. We look at the good news a little differently. Now, I don't believe we're better than anybody. Of course, we're not. I don't believe we're a perfect church. Of course, we're not. There's no such thing. But I believe we have an awesome theology, at least for me. I hope you would want me to say that, right? You want me to be a United Methodist? If, if I didn't believe that, I'd need to go to another denomination, right? Here's what grace is. Grace is God's undeserving love and encouragement that makes us more and more like Jesus Christ. There's this story of, I think it's Da Vinci. It's probably not even true, but, you know, preachers don't care about that. It's just a good story, so I'm going to say it. I think Da Vinci was carrying a block, carrying a block with him, a big stone block, and the wheels were running, and he was taking it. And somebody said, what? how in the world do you know how to carve out a masterpiece out of this block. And he says, it's easy. I just chip away everything that doesn't look like a masterpiece. And it becomes beautiful. And I believe grace is that thing that chips us, chips away a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit of anger, a little bit of resentment, a little bit of whatever that worry is that turns us into very fearful people and is making a masterpiece out of you and out of me. Grace is God's unrelenting love. Here's Fred Beekner's definition of grace. I love it. And Fred's a Presbyterian, so like I said, you know, we don't have a monopoly on it. Um, he says this, Grace is something you can, never, you can never get, but can only be given. There's no way to earn it, or deserve it, or bring it about any more than you can deserve the taste of raspberries and cream. Or earn good looks. Or bring about your own birth. A good sleep is grace. And so are good dreams. Most tears are grace. The smell of rain is grace. Somebody loving you is grace. Loving somebody is grace. Have you ever tried to love somebody? A crucial eccentricity of the Christian faith is the assertion that people are saved by grace. The grace of God means something like, I love this part, here's your life, you might never have been, but you are, because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. Here's the world, beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid, I'm with you. Nothing can ever separate us. It's for you, I created the universe. I love you. There's only one catch, he continues to write. This is still a quote. Like any other gift, the gift of grace can be yours only if you'll reach out and take it. Maybe being able to reach out and take it is a gift too. Now grace is one gift. Grace is this one movement. And the movement has one direction. And the direction, thanks be to God, is toward you, toward us. Now, 
In the Wesley way of salvation, he actually wrote a sermon about it. He, would say, he wouldn't say this, but this is the way I read it and I think about it. It's a lasting, vibrant relationship with God that not only saves us, but is often an invisible movement reconciling the whole world. That doesn't just, it's not just about us either. Grace is bigger than that. So there are, are three ways of talking about grace in the Methodist tradition. And it's just one grace, but it, 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 does, it does help, I think. First is that grace is active and present in your life before you even know it's there. Wesley would call that provenient grace. Grace that comes before. And then there's another kind of grace, the same thing, but this, this continuum, this grace, it's grace that happens when we put our faith in the gospel. It's justifying grace. And then finally, there's a grace that helps us look more and more like Christ, the sanctifying grace. In other words, grace is always available, always there, relentlessly pursuing you and me from birth to death and through death the whole time. It is all grace. You see, in our tradition, you can't just look back at maybe one day. Oh, that's the day I was saved. No, no, that may be true. But it's more than that. It's more than that. Grace is a dynamic and a movement that happens all the time. Not just something that happened a long time ago. God's love is available to us. And you are absolutely loved by God before you're even aware of it. It's love from the very moment of our existence. Unrelenting, uncompromising, unbridled love is the base of our grace. It's all through our scriptures, by the way. I mean, just make this up. Before Israel knew they needed God... God reached down and said, you're going to be my people. You're going to be my peculiar treasure. And Israel became God's treasure. And then all of a sudden, in the New Testament, God is reaching out to all kinds of people, just like it said in the prophecy of Isaiah and Jeremiah, that it would be a light to all the nations. And then Peter's dream, where this this uh, 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 sheet of uh, all this kind of food, seafood, shrimp, oysters, all this, quote, unclean food that God made clean. Aren't you glad that God made shrimp clean? <laughs> right? I know I am. <laughs> Nobody in the South can see. Yeah, I mean, you can eat catfish. God says eat it. Have the, enjoy it, right? Why? Because God's grace is greater than one people, one nation, one ethnicity. God's grace is bigger than that. And if you don't believe it, then maybe your God is too small. God is always calling out. Grace is always coming toward us and toward the world. God is obsessed with the flourishing of all creation. Deeply involved in your well-being. God wants you to flourish. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that in John 1, that Pamela read, it's like in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word. The Word. Not some arbitrary proposition. Not some abstract thought. No, the Word became flesh and came to us in Jesus Christ so that all you see in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you, you, that's what you see in God. That's who God is. To reveal that God is 
has this amazing grace and is out to save the world. Jesus didn't come, says John, to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through his amazing grace. The light is for all people. It says all people. Regardless of how scary the world may feel, we place our faith in this idea. The darkness will not and cannot overcome it. This anchors everything I do. Everything I do. So provenient grace. So that's the foundation. Provenient grace may seem like something less way before, but it's not. It is the foundation of our faith. Of our faith. Back when Tripp was a little, a, a little boy, you know, we would, he, we'd put together Legos and all these things. We'd put them together. And we always had to grab a big old coffee book table. Because we needed a, a foundation because I wanted Trip to build something big and challenging and fun and awesome. That's provenient grace. It's our very foundation that before I love God, God loves me. Now, Trip is older and doesn't play with Legos. He's a tennis pro and he's really obnoxious now to hit a tennis ball with. He keeps giving me lessons. You know, I was like, Trip, I don't want a lesson every time I hit the ball with you. Let's just have fun. But he can't not coach and he can't not teach. That's what teachers do, they teach. And what he tells me is, Dad, you got to move your feet. If you don't have a good foundation, it doesn't matter how good your swing is. And our foundation, theologically, is on the solid rock of provenient grace, grace that comes before. You didn't earn it. I didn't earn it. We didn't earn it. God just loves to give it. Now, I've got a good friend. i got a good friend. He's from another tradition. Love him to death. He's a preacher. He said, Bruce, you Methodists are so weak. All you talk about is grace, grace, grace. And that's the easy stuff. And I, I, I tell him, I won't say his last name, but I'll tell you his first name. Sam, if you think maybe provenient grace would be great if, it, if, I, if I believed it was just for me or my kind of people. But you see, Sam, I as a Methodist have to believe grace is coming to everybody. That means I've got to love people that I don't necessarily like. Or people that have done me wrong. People that have disappointed me. And that is robust and difficult. And that's hard. But it's our theology. And it's our faith. And that's why I've got to assume that every person I run into is the face of Christ. And to know that God loves every person I meet Every person I meet just as much as God loves me. It's a solid foundation. It's my coffee book, right? That I can build a robust theology on. Because I want to build something big and beautiful and be a part of something that's just bigger than us. What I like too is that a theology built on grace is, uh, you know, if you want to check yourself, well, what do I believe, what do I believe? John Wesley had three simple rules. He says, a good theology does no harm. A good theology does no harm, doesn't alienate. A good theology helps us, um, helps us to do good. If your theology, if what you believe isn't motivating you 
to use your hands and feet to serve last, the least, and the lost, all people, then rethink your theology. Finally, a theology, a good theology, helps us to stay connected and in love with God. It brings our soul and our hearts to greater heights, and that's what grace does. This is our foundation becomes sturdy, and it can handle anything. Anything. It's hard to mimic, like I said. We can't do it better than God can. We'll never love somebody more than God loves them. But how we think of God matters. I have never met a preacher that loved Dante's Inferno and sinners in the hands of an angry God that was any fun to hang out with, right? What you think about God, you begin to act out. So be careful about what you think about God. Test it. Test it. Seeing in the lives, it's easy to see grace in the lives of people we like, but what about seeing it in the lives of people we don't like, and especially, that's really, really hard to do. In other words, this kind of practicing God's grace is impossible to to do on our own. But God's love can come to us and can come through us if we'll allow it. The grace of Jesus Christ can help us do things that we never thought we could do. But provenient grace is foundational to my faith. It's one of great importance to our theological identity. It's so important that we work it into our way of being. We try to be a people who remember that it's moving into the world. We are one of the few denominations that practice an open table. Hear me out on this. If you respond to my invitation to come up to get bread... You don't have to be a Methodist to come up and get it. But even more so, here's something more radical. Don't even have to be a Christian. If you respond, then the table is for you. It's funny. Y'all know that we're our close cousins of the Episcopalian church. Y'all know that? Episcopal? Love my Episcopalian friends. Sometimes we have, sometimes we have worship services together, but we have one difference. And that is, it's awkward to serve communion in a church full of Methodists and Episcopalians. And God love them. I'm not saying things wrong with their theology. But in their, in their table theology, you have to be a baptized Christian to come forward to take communion. Now, I know a lot of Episcopal priests that don't necessarily, would never turn anybody away. But in their rule book, that's what we do. But for us, expressively, if God is calling you to come to kneel at this altar then there, let there be no barrier for you to receive the cup and the bread. John Wesley thought and believed that some people might even convert or have their hearts strangely warmed after getting a taste and tasting and seeing how good God is. We baptize infants. I know a lot of people like don't quite understand that. You know, they don't quite understand that. If we don't have a notion of provenient grace... This makes no sense. But this makes all the sense in the world if we know and believe that God already loves the youngest baby in this sanctuary that we've ever baptized. And what I want to make sure of is, I think Benjamin was the last, Ben was the last one we baptized. Wherever Ben goes in life, or any of the other beautiful babies we baptized, I want Ben to know that 30 years from now he can come to St. Luke's and know that he is loved and that we're proud of him and we're glad that we, we made promises to God on his behalf 
for Todd and for Laura and for the whole family. Why? Because we know God is already at work in Ben's life and has great plans for Ben. That's our backbone. We have a responsibility to live out that, for, not just for every child, but for every person. It's why we seek justice and mercy for all people. Because we claim this truth. And in a world that is trying to divide and marginalize and incite fear of the stranger and the othering of people, we have an answer. We have a response. And our answer and our response is to tell the story of Jesus. It's a story of Jesus Christ who came searching for us and not the other way around. It's a strong counter-theological argument against the way of the world. You are loved by God no matter what. That is God's grace. The world still needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only sermon I know how to preach. And may we have the confidence and boldness to live it and preach it in all of our lives. The light of the world has come into the darkness. And the darkness, my friends, will never overcome it. Because God is... Oh, the chime, I like that. Because God is good. And God's grace is coming to you and to me and to the world. Believe it. Amen. I invite us now to...